Good afternoon. Um, I'm Rebecca Heinrichs, a fellow here at Hudson Institute, where I have the privilege of research and writing on a variety of national security subjects, um, but I focus on missile defense and nuclear deterrence policy. Thank you all for joining us today to discuss a newly released study by the National Institute for Public Policy entitled, A New Nuclear Review for a New Age. I'll let Keith tell you more about the study in just a moment, but first, um, allow me to provide very brief introductions of our panelists. Dr. Keith Payne is professor and head of the Graduate Department of Defense and Strategic Studies at Missouri State University. He is also president and co-founder of the National Institute for Public Policy and the director of the study we are discussing today. Keith served in the Department of Defense as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Forces Policy. Dr. Thomas Carrico, uh, sorry, we'll go, to, we'll go to Matt here. Dr. Matthew Kranig is an associate professor in the Department of Government and the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a senior fellow in the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. And then Dr. Thomas Carrico is a senior fellow with the International Security Program and the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS where he arrived in 2014 as a fellow with the Project on Nuclear Issues. His research focuses on national security, U.S. nuclear forces, missile defense, and public law. Um, with that, what I intend to do is turn um, the discussion over to Keith for him to outline some of the highlights in the report, and then we'll move our way down, and then I will um, uh, add my own comments on the missile defense portion, and then we'll have um, a short discussion with me moderating, and then we'll turn over the last 10 or 15 minutes of our time together with questions from the audience, so please do prepare those um, as you uh, listen to the discussion. And with that, Keith. Okay. Thank you, Rebecca, for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here at the Hudson Institute in the, this beautiful new building. And uh, I should add that almost 40 years ago, I worked at Hudson Institute. Uh, I was Herman Kahn's assistant for uh, almost four years, and Herman Kahn was the original director of the Hudson Institute. And uh, it was a, post, a great postgraduate education for me. I was working for Herman Kahn at the Hudson Institute for four years. He was a genius, and a genius particularly on the subjects that we're going to be talking about here uh, very briefly. What I'll do is uh, discuss very briefly the, uh, the origins of the study, because in some ways the origins of the study are, uh, help define help the uh, conclusions presented in the study. Uh, it began about 19 months ago. The efforts to put this together began about 19 months ago, which was well before we knew who was going to win this election. In fact, it was before we knew who all was going to be running for the presidency. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was put together a study uh, that would help inform the 2017 NPR. Now, at the time, we didn't know that there was going to be a 2017 NPR. We just knew that there had been three previous NPRs, and administrations tend to uh, put in process a nuclear posture review NPR when they come in. And so in anticipation that the new administration, whoever might win the election, would have a nuclear posture review, what we wanted to do was put together a study that could be useful for those people who then actually have the responsibility of writing a nuclear post review. And so as soon as President uh, Trump came into office, very shortly thereafter, he in fact mandated that there would be a nuclear post review uh, in 2017. And the original public discussion of it said it would be done in six months. And if you go trail that back, it would be due sometime in October, whether that holds or not, uh, we'll see. But our effort was to put together a bipartisan group, 
again, we didn't know who was going to win this election, so we wanted a, a bipartisan group with very credible uh, participants, both as writers and as senior reviewers. And that's exactly what we did. And I think there's a, copies available uh, out in the, uh, the entrance area there. And what you'll see on the front page are the participants in this. And what you'll notice is that the senior review group included uh, a very diverse set of folks, uh, retired senior military. In fact, four former commanders of the Strategic Command or the Strategic Air Command participated. Uh, two senators, Senator Kyle and Senator Robb, uh, participated. We had um, technical expertise and policy expertise, including folks who had worked on all of the previous NPRs. And so uh, we had a, a wide array of folks working on this. And we also wanted to include some folks uh, on the, from the younger generation who are undoubtedly going to be writing whenever the next NPR comes around the corner. They'll undoubtedly be working on that. So that was our goal, is to have a bipartisan group, a multidisciplinary group. And I should add that uh, the gentleman who ran the senior review group, the person who chaired the senior group, was a gentleman named Johnny Foster. Dr. Johnny Foster, who some of you will recognize the name of. Johnny Foster is a legend. He go, went back, goes back to the Kennedy administration, uh, a, 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 true, uh, a true expert uh, in all of these matters, but indeed a technical sort of wizard in these subjects. And so it was a real pleasure to have someone of, of Dr. Foster's um, credibility to be the chair of the senior review group. So that's sort of the setup for the, the study. I should say that the timing turned out to be impeccable. I wish I could claim that we actually planned the timing to work out the way it did. But the study became available basically at the beginning of the official process for the writing of the nuclear posture review. You know, sometimes luck is, uh, is, is better than anything else. So this, the study was printed. Uh, virtually overlapped with the beginning of the official nuclear posture review. And, and let me just add, for those of you who haven't followed this subject in, in detail, the nuclear posture review that's underway right now is the fourth in the series of nuclear posture reviews, the first one going back to 1994 in the Clinton administration. Let me take just a minute uh, to identify a couple of the main points and then turn this over to my colleagues here to continue the discussion. Our, our, our thesis coming in really was comparable to the original starting points of every previous NPR. Every previous NPR has said that when the security environment changes dramatically, then the United States needs to reconsider its nuclear policies and its nuclear posture. Because the strategic environment, and by, by that's meant the threat environment, the political, international political environment, if there are changes, then those changes may well have implications for how the United States thinks about nuclear policy and its nuclear force structure. And so what we looked at was the political environment, the strategic environment, if you will. Uh, how had it changed since the most recent nuclear posture review? And the most recent nuclear posture review had been done in 2010 uh, by the Obama administration. And so if you just think back to 2010 and actually 2009 when it was being written and where we are today, uh, it's pretty obvious that there's been dramatic changes since then. And so what we did in the first part of the, of the monograph of the, of the text is just do a fairly straightforward discussion of what's new and what's different since 2010. And I won't take any time to go through that here, but if you look, for example, at the expectations of our relationship with Russia, just changed dramatically. 
if you go back and think about the immediate post-Cold War period, the general notion was that Russia was essentially going to be a partner, uh, maybe a quasi-ally, probably not a formal ally, but a quasi-ally. In other words, there was going to be great cooperation with Russia. And so the bad Cold War was over. We had entered a new environment. People called it a new world order, if you can remember. Uh, history was over. We sort of solved all those problems. Nuclear weapons were no longer very relevant, and they were of declining relevance. Nuclear deterrence was of declining relevance and declining usefulness. Uh, that was the notion of what the post-Cold War world was going to be like. And in fact, if you look at what the United States did, it took that view of the international security environment very much to heart. And so if you just go back and look at the number of nuclear weapons, the types of nuclear systems that the United States uh, has deployed and what it's done with those, uh, since the end of the Cold War, what you see is a steep slope of elimination of, of forces, reduction of forces. In fact, if, depending on exactly what you count, probably have eliminated approximately 85% of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, deployed nuclear arsenal, has been eliminated uh, since those days. So where, where does that put us now? What that, what that suggested us as we were putting this report together was that the environment has now changed dramatically. Uh, Russia now emphasizes nuclear weapons. It emphasizes the potential use of nuclear weapons. Uh, it engages in explicit nuclear threats. Sort of every Tuesday and Thursday, someone else gets threatened by Russia with nuclear attack. Uh, they threaten NATO allies. They threaten the United States. They threaten uh, neutrals. One of the more recent ones was a nuclear threat to Sweden. And so what you see, uh, in addition to this kind of change in tone, change in discussion, is a very serious nuclear modernization program that goes back more than a decade. So to make a long story short, uh, what you see, again, is a major change in the threat environment faced by the United States. The threats, uh, the environment in Asia, I won't go into detail about that. Everybody's been reading about what North Korea is doing, uh, Chinese expansionism into the East uh, China Sea, for example. The environment's changed. The United States needs to reconsider its general post-Cold War positions with regard to nuclear policy and nuclear posture. And so that's what this study does. So given where we are in the world, the direction, the uncertainties involved, how should we now think about nuclear forces and nuclear policy? And that's the setup for where the rest of the study goes. And with that, I'm happy to turn this over to my colleagues. Great. Thank you, Matt. Great. Uh, well, first, thank you very much to Rebecca and to Hudson for hosting this event. Uh, thanks to Keith to, for inviting me for being part of, to be part of the study. And thanks to you all for, for coming out today. Uh, Dr. Payne asked me to be part of the study to look specifically at the relationship between U.S. nuclear weapons and nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, and he asked me to do this because I've been doing some writing in this area. I have an article that came out in the Journal of Peace Research, a peer-reviewed political science journal last year, looking at this issue. Um, just one more plug, I have a book coming out next year with Oxford University Press called The, Log the Logic of American Nuclear Strategy. Uh, and there's a chapter in that book that also looks at the relationship between U.S. nuclear weapons and nonproliferation. And this is an important relationship because for many years, uh, many U.S. officials argued that the United States needs to reduce the size of its nuclear arsenal and de-emphasize nuclear weapons uh, in order to help combat the spread of nuclear proliferation elsewhere. Uh, and so they argued that if the United States 
the largest superpower on Earth, needs, this, uh, needs a large nuclear arsenal to protect itself, uh, then what kind of message does that send to Iran, to North Korea, to other non-nuclear states? It's going to make it more likely they asserted that those countries would want nuclear weapons. Um, and they argued that even if it doesn't affect Iran directly, it uh, affects U.S. nonproliferation policy more broadly. If we're trying to build international coalitions to put pressure on Iran or North Korea, um, it's difficult to go to, say, Turkey or Brazil or other non-nuclear states and say, we need your help to stop Iran from building nuclear weapons. Uh, difficult to make that case, they asserted, when we have thousands of nuclear weapons. Uh, so therefore, they argued we should reduce the size of our nuclear arsenal, uh, and that'll help dissuade other countries from pursuing nuclear weapons and also make it easier for us to get international cooperation on nonproliferation issues. Um, so at a superficial level, uh, this makes sense, but when you uh, start to investigate it uh, a little bit more, as I, as I point out, the, the argument really falls apart. Um, so I'm, I'm a political scientist by training. I'm a professor at Georgetown. There's a large academic literature, peer-reviewed academic literature, on why countries pursue nuclear weapons or give them up, a large academic literature on why countries adopt certain nuclear nonproliferation policies, uh, kind of a, a wide range of variables that we think drive these policies. Um, but in the peer-reviewed literature, uh, you know, contrary to what's often asserted in Washington, uh, there, there are no studies that show that the size of the U.S. nuclear arsenal or whether the U.S. is emphasizing nuclear weapons somehow influences uh, other countries. And, you know, if you start to think about it, it makes sense. You know, imagine you're Iran's supreme leader. You're trying to decide whether to advance your nuclear program or uh, put limits on it, uh, build nuclear weapons or not. Uh, there are a lot of things that you're probably thinking about. Uh, you're thinking, you know, would having nuclear weapons improve my security? Uh, can I build nuclear weapons? Do we have the technical capability? If we don't have the technical capability, can we get help? Um, and what about the international pressure? How much international pressure are we going to run up against? Are there going to be difficult sanctions, maybe military strikes from Israel or United States or others? Uh, so when you're thinking through those issues, it's just kind of implausible to think that the Supreme Leader is saying, well, let's see, does the United States have 1,550 nuclear weapons or, or 1,000? Uh, and if they have 1,550, then we'll push ahead. But if they have 1,000, then we'll stop. And it's re just really not plausible that that's uh, one of the most important considerations. Or similarly, think about a country uh, whose cooperation we're trying to get on nuclear nonproliferation issues. You know, imagine Turkey. Uh, Turkey was a country who we, we thought was important in the Iran nuclear negotiations because it's a border, uh, shares a border with Iran. There was a lot of trade between Turkey and Iran. Uh, so imagine you're Turkey. President Erdogan trying to decide whether to participate in sanctions against Iran uh, on nonproliferation. You know, you're probably thinking, well, do I care if Iran has nuclear weapons? Um, what is the cost to my economy to put difficult economic sanctions on Iran? Uh, what is the cost to the kind of bilateral relationship between my country and Iran for these sanctions? What is my relationship with the United States if I don't participate um, on, on these nonproliferation issues? Uh, but again, kind of implausible to think that President Erdogan was thinking, well, let's see, does the United States have 1,500 or 1,000 nuclear weapons? If they have 1,500, I won't participate, but if they have 1,000, uh, I will. Uh, so, so logically and theoretically, it, it doesn't really make much sense to think that there's a leak, or, or a link, excuse me. Um, uh, a lot of leaking in Washington, so uh, slip of the tongue. Um, so in this study for the Journal of Peace Research, I go beyond that and then do some systematic uh, empirical uh, test and look for relationships between the size of the U.S. nuclear arsenal and kind of tangible nonproliferation outcomes. Are countries 
acquiring, pursuing, exploring nuclear weapons? Are they transferring sensitive nuclear technology to others? How are they voting on nuclear nonproliferation issues in the UN Security Council and elsewhere? Uh, and I was un unable to find any kind of correlations. Was able to find correlations between these factors that we've known have mattered for a long time, security and, and other things, uh, but no correlation between U.S. nuclear policy and these countries' uh, nuclear nonproliferation policies. Um, and then I did a case study as well and looked at the Iran nuclear crisis and how that developed. Um, and you know, uh, the advance of Iran's nuclear program, the getting international cooperation to put pressure on Iran, the negotiations, uh, there were a lot of factors driving the program, driving the international uh, effort against it, Iran's behavior, its security environment, um, but no evidence that U.S. nuclear reduction somehow helped us to get cooperation on, on Iran. Uh, and in fact, I interviewed Obama's director for Iran policy at the White House, and, and he said as much uh, that he didn't think that our nuclear reductions had an effect uh, directly on, on Iran or the Iran nuclear negotiations. Uh, so if that's the case, then, if it, if it is the case that there's not a, a link, um, then, you know, what are the implications? Well, one implication is um, we should set our nuclear arsenal for other priorities, not for nonproliferation, for deterrence, assurance, uh, damage limitation, other things, uh, objectives that we think are important for U.S. nuclear weapons. Uh, and when it comes to nonproliferation, then nonproliferation is important. We should work to stop other countries from building nuclear weapons. Um, but there we should rely on other more proven tools. Uh, the nuclear nonproliferation regime, uh, sanctions, other tools. Uh, there's no reason to believe really that uh, reductions in our arsenal is somehow going to make it easier to stop proliferation elsewhere. Um, there's just one, one exception uh, where there does seem to be a link, which is uh, with our allies. Uh, you know, there are countries like Japan, South Korea, um, countries in NATO, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, that really depend a lot on the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And they've decided to forego, uh, forego their own nuclear capability because they believe they can rely on the U.S. nuclear extended deterrent. So they do pay close attention to U.S. nuclear policy, posture, changes to posture. Um, and we haven't uh, seen an effect here yet because we've been done a pretty good job of extending deterrence and reassuring these countries. But if you go talk to them, as, as me and my colleagues do, they'll, they'll express concerns about the United States cutting too low, about, um, you know, reducing reliance on nuclear weapons too much. Uh, and so there, there could be uh, an effect if South Korea, Japan, Poland believe that they can no longer rely on the U.S. nuclear deterrent, uh, then I think there is a danger that they may consider uh, their own independent arsenals. So I think I'll um, end my remarks there and turn it over to the next speaker. Well, thanks, uh, thanks to Hudson for hosting, and it's a great building, and thanks to Keith for, uh, for allowing me to participate uh, in this. I'm going to do a couple things. I'm going to kind of hit some of the very high points of the principles uh, that I think really inform the study and that really make it, uh, it's going to make it durable. Uh, second, talk a bit about how missile defense really contributes to uh, deterrence, assurance, and damage limitation goals. And then the third, go a bit beyond it and talk a bit about kind of competing issues of flexibility, flexibility and adaptability being kind of the, the touchstone of all this. Uh, and then uh, especially how it relates to conventional uh, forces as well. And I think just to begin, uh, I don't think Keith mentioned this, that really, you know, the one, if there's one takeaway is that this, this study really puts deterrence back atop the U.S. nuclear agenda uh, in a big and really uh, explicit way. Uh, taken off of the top of the nuclear agenda, uh, very clearly, very deliberately in the 2010 nuclear posture review, 
uh, and this kind of puts it back. And that's, as Keith was saying, really a function of the, the times as much as anything. Uh, the actions of Russia, I think, uh, and others uh, would prompt uh, anybody uh, kind of doing this study in this time uh, to do something like that. Uh, and there's a couple of uh, programs underway that in terms of the flexibility and resilience, uh, the, the principles that the study emphasizes, uh, that I think are so uh, incredibly important in a time of, of so much change, of so much turmoil. It's hard to predict what's going to be five years from now. And so therefore that flexibility and resilience becomes so important. Uh, and two of the, the things I think really to single out here are the, the GBSD program and the LRSO program. Uh, the, the kind of future ICBM force and the future air launch cruise missile, uh, the distributed quality of the, perp of the first uh, and the flexible uh, uh, and penetrating quality of the second kind of deal with, uh, you know, doubts about survivability, right, that might be tempting to some uh, actor to, uh, to attack the United States. And then also, uh, you know, I think the, the LRSO, uh, notwithstanding the, I would say, the sanguine character of the debate out there in, in the, the prints about kind of the ease with which we have stealth, we have penetration capabilities, uh, that's going to be hard to keep up, to sustain that capability in the face of a, a very aging uh, outcome. Uh, and uh, likewise, the B-21 is not going to be a Klingon bird of prey with a cloaking device. I think we kind of think about those things as just all too easy, but, but sustaining that uh, I think is going to make uh, LRSO very uh, important to maintain. So let me move now to the to U.S. and allied missile defense capabilities. Uh, these missile defense and conventional forces were prominent in the last two uh, NPRs. Uh, the, the 2010 NPR had missile defense, you know, some 20 times in the pace of, of a 65-page document. Uh, and explicitly uh, was talked about in the last administration how missile defense strengthens regional deterrence. And I think that that desire for integration between, you might say, active defense uh, and, uh, and nuclear uh, policy is going to, uh, the appetite for that has only grown. Uh, in the face, I would say, of a, a very diverse air and missile threat that's, that's changing, it's not strictly about ballistic missiles anymore. Lots of cruise missile threats, lots of air threats, that are really complicating the calculus. Uh, what, if it, what if it were the case that our ICBM force uh, might be attacked, not with nuclear weapons, but with some other force, some other uh, capabilities in, in that spectrum? How do we think about that? Uh, I think there's a couple ways in which missile defenses support deterrence specifically. Uh, first of all uh, is to create options uh, and to support freedom of action rather than uh, kind of creating pressure for retaliation or preemption. Uh, and so, for instance, in 2006, the Bush administration having a little bit of uh, homeland uh, missile defense deployed uh, had a choice to not strike a typo dong uh, on the launch pad, as then uh, Bill Perry and Ash Carter uh, suggested that we do. Uh, in 2016, uh, fall of 2016, uh, a USS ship, U uh, U.S. ship, the Mason, was attacked off the coast of Yemen by some anti-ship cruise missiles, right? You might not have heard all that much about it. It might be forgettable because that ship wasn't sunk in the way that an Emirati ship was sunk uh, just the week before. And so the United States had the option to respond in a manner of its choosing rather than being sucked into a ground war in Yemen uh, in that sense. Scud hunting is hard, after all. And the July 4 launch of the ICBM, we might have had some indications that it was coming, but not, I think it's fair to say, in a kind of an actionable way. 
uh, to go out and, and strike it preemptively. So therefore, as, as these threats get more mobile, get more survivable, get harder to hit left of launch as the, as the, uh, as the hiding gets easier than the finding, uh, this is going to remain important. Also, raising the threshold for attack. And, you know, I think that um, all the talk about an adversary wanting to escalate to de-escalate uh, is applicable here. And I think there might be some value to thinking about how low-tier air and missile defenses against so-called non-strategic uh, missile threats, say Russian missiles, uh, might contribute to stability uh, by kind of taking some of the easy smash-and-grab type uh, scenarios off the table, making that a little bit harder, raising the threshold, uh, say, in, uh, say in Europe. And a third way in which I think this contributes to deterrence is through supporting operations, right? By supporting the technical ability to execute a deterrent threat. Defenses for various points, like points of debarkation, as well as the freedom of maneuver, can therefore improve the credibility of our forward uh, deployed forces. The U.S. Army is talking a lot about kind of multi-domain battle stuff, right? That's the catch word of the day, right? They like to talk about maneuver, but there's going to need to be enough air and missile defenses to protect that maneuver so that the credibility of any response on, on land or across domains uh, can be brought to bear. And then also kind of assurance, right? The, uh, the, the uh, attempt by North Korea or some other power to try to decouple uh, the alliance relationships between the United States uh, and our allies by, say, threatening or trying to blackmail uh, the U.S. homeland or U.S. forces uh, is, is in, a, in a sense, kind of obvious. And having you know, even some kind of uh, thin defense against those things makes that harder and strengthens assurance. But, of course, also damage limitation. Uh, as President Clinton said in 2000, uh, homeland missile defense in the event of deterrence failure is an extra dimension uh, of insurance. And I really want to uh, talk now, kind of move on to the next thing, and that's a little bit about uh, competing metrics uh, of flexibility. And the, the principles of flexibility and uh, resilience that apply so well to the nuclear force, I think, are also, also should be applied to any uh, missile defense decisions. Uh, the nuclear posture review and the missile defense review going on, of course, uh, simultaneously. Uh, and three pr uh, additional principles of adaptability that this, this report uh, highlights are kind of diversity and readiness of the force, the ability to make changes in the force, and the potential to modify existing capabilities through hardware changes. Right, so wherever it is that we put our uh, missile defenses, wherever we put our, our interceptors, they're going to need to be, uh, I would say, adapted and evolved over time. Uh, one man's flexibility uh, it might be another man's rigidity. And so therefore, uh, what might seem to be uh, contributors to flexibility from mobile uh, or sea-based uh, interceptors might actually tie up those assets in different ways and might actually spread us thin uh, in others. Uh, and, let me, and a final kind of point is that, um, uh, to repeat myself, it's not just about ballistics anymore. Uh, and notwithstanding the fact that the presidentially mandated review is the BMDR, right, there is a spectrum of threats. As the former vice chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Sandy Winnefeld, said a couple years ago, uh, homeland cruise missile defense uh, is in some ways more important uh, in his mind than regional ballistic missile defense. Right? And what he's talking about there, I think, is a, a near peer with cruise missiles 
they can hold at risk various things uh, here at home. And so I think the importance of integrated air and missile defense and conventional forces to support all this uh, are just as important as well. And I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you, Tom. And then I will um, provide just additional remarks on the missile defense piece before we turn it over to discussion. Um, uh, as Tom said, um, we, we have seen an increase in the number of uh, ballistic, not just ballistic missile, but in um, other types of missile threats as well. Um, and this is because countries see uh, ballistic and cruise missiles as a cost-effective way to hold at risk um, you know, other countries, militaries that are much more advanced than their own, including the United States. Um, it's their, it, it enables them to coerce and blackmail the United States um, in, a, in a very cost-effective way. And missiles are also viewed as symbols of national power and prestige. Um, there's a recently released Pentagon, Pentagon report that, that does a nice job of kind of laying out the different sorts of missile threats um, that we see today. But just as hostile nations have made great technical progress in their missile systems, so has the United States made great progress in our missile defense systems. And just to highlight a few notable um, successful tests that the program has had. Um, and again, um, just uh, many of you in the audience do know this, but our, when we talk about our missile defense systems, we're not talking about just one particular system. We really have a system of systems. So it's a variety of different types of missile defense systems um, that complement one another and intercept different kinds of missiles in, in different phases of the incoming missiles flight path. Um, the Aegis weapon system um, in February of this year successfully um, intercepted a um, MRBM with the SM-32A missile. Um, and then in May of this year, just days after North Korea tested yet another missile in a very important test called the FTG-15, the ground-based mid-course defense system or the GMD system, that is the only missile defense system the United States currently has deployed to protect the United States homeland from an incoming um, ICBM. And it successfully intercepted its first ICBM-class target. Um, and this, this successful test, the FTG-15, also earned an upgrade in the, uh, what I have always considered a tough audience over at the Office of Test and Evaluation, um, uh, uh, upgraded its status, um, giving it an increased um, stamp of approval for the re reliability of the system. And um, just a couple of days ago, the THAAD system uh, intercepted um, uh, a test target. So those were three great, and that was the 14th out of 14 successful intercepts for the THAAD um, system. Um, with these, I'm also happy to report that um, combined with the technical successes of these programs, the new administration is much more friendly, um, at least in, um, uh, in, in open statements from the president himself, from the secretary of defense, et cetera, of, of um, much more uh, friendly towards the idea of expanding missile defense in, um, for the United States. And with a Congress eager to build on these technical successes and close the vulnerabilities that do exist, there is some increased momentum to expand and invest in missile defense across the board, to be sure, but especially systems meant to protect the U.S. homeland, as Tom Rees, um, uh, just mentioned in the last portion of his remarks, um, that there, there does seem to be an increased threat to the U.S. homeland, not just from the threats that we've seen from the kinds of threats that North Korea and Iran can pose, but, but also a worry now from near-peer competitors as well. Um, and, and so if I could just offer um, a few uh, 
highlights as to what the United States can do to increase and expand the reliability of homeland missile defense, and these are also mentioned in the report as well. Again, GMD, that's the homeland missile defense portion. There is room in Fort Greely, Alaska, to expand out the number of ground-based interceptors there. We've already completed the environmental impact studies that's done, ready to go. We just have to finish those fields there and buy the ground-based interceptors to put in those fields. That just gives the United States more bullets to have ready to go. We could, I mean, to me, that would be a sort of no-brainer to move that program along. We could also move forward with portable ground-based interceptors on the east coast of the United States. We really could put them anywhere to close the thinner layers of coverage that the United States has to protect the U.S. homeland. And just on this point, too, because there has been some misinformation in the media about what the ground-based mid-course defense system provides protection for. It does provide protection for the entire United States. That includes Hawaii as well. And the United States should move forward with filling out, increasing the space sensor layer that the United States currently has. This will provide overall increased reliability of the entire system. It provides birth-to-death tracking, so we can follow the incoming missile from birth to death, which would increase the overall reliability of the entire system. And then last, I would say that the United States should also move forward with an interceptor layer in space. The House of Representatives recently just marked up the defense bill in the PASC committee and passed, Congressman Trent Franks, my former boss, introduced an amendment that passed out of committee. And what it would do is it would move forward with a testbed for a space-based layer, and it's something that we certainly recommend in the report as well. We've studied this subject enough. A lot of times the opponents of moving forward to a space-based interceptor layer will say we need to study the concept more, but there are numerous studies now that show that it would give the United States a significant qualitative improvement of the whole system to be able to have an interceptor layer in space as well. So we should move forward with that, and there is also support in the Senate. Last year, the Congress, in a bipartisan way, moved to amend the National Missile Defense Act so that it no longer states that the United States will develop a system to defend against limited threats, a limited missile defense system. We could always build a missile defense system to defend against whatever threats the United States perceived against its own interests. But the way the law was written, many people interpreted it as that the United States could only build a limited defense against ballistic missiles. So now that that limited is struck, I think it clarifies very nicely that the United States is free to build and to expand and develop any missile defense system that only limited by technological limits. And so that is a great policy development that we've seen. So that pretends great things, I think, for missile defense expansion and improvement in the years to come. I'll close with that, if I may, and then I will turn to Keith with my first question for you. And that is the subject of treaties and Russia. Russia was found in violation of the INF Treaty during the previous administration. It continues to be in violation of that treaty. 
and there is some discussion about what the United States should do about that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that and what your recommendations might be? Sure. Uh, in fact, uh, the Obama administration found the Russian Federation in violation of the INF Treaty, which is one of the centerpieces of, uh, of nuclear arms control. Uh, as publicly reported, the administration brought this concern uh, to the Russians, and the Russian response was, show us the proof that we're violating this, um, and, and, um, and then turning around and charging the United States with violating the INF Treaty. Uh, and there, as far as is, is available on the open press, there hasn't been much progress with regard to uh, getting the Russians to move back from the areas in which they're violating the treaty. And so the, the question really presents itself is, what does the United States do when it has a, an arms control partner, historically, that tends to violate treaties? because the INF Treaty isn't the only treaty that the Russian Federation or agreement the Russian Federation has not abided by. It goes back to a, a whole series of, of uh, treaties and agreements that the, Russian, that the Russian Federation has decided it either uh, doesn't want to abide by or it appears that it's not abiding by. And so, the, again, the basic question is, what do you do with regard to an arms control agenda when your main negotiating partner uh, cannot be counted upon to comply with an agreement, even if you can verify the agreement. Or the usual answer is, well, we'll make sure that we can verify the agreement. And, and that's great. We should be able to verify agreements. But what do you do when you have an agreement that you believe is suitably verified, uh, but your negotiating partner simply doesn't abide by it? Uh, because then the question becomes enforcement. Uh, how do you enforce a treaty when you have a sovereign state deciding that it's going to violate its terms? Because frankly, that's where we are. We have a whole series of agreements with Russia going back to the, the presidential nuclear initiatives, which were a political commitment by Yeltsin that the Russian Federation is simply not abiding by. This has to do with tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, the INF Treaty that, uh, that Rebecca mentioned. There's even some consideration that the Russian Federation is in violation of the Open Skies Agreement, which is an agreement that goes back uh, for decades. And so uh, what we suggested is that the United States needs to reconsider how we think about our arms control agenda. And not because we shouldn't be open to arms control agreements that serve the national interest. We should be open to arms control agreements that serve the national interest. The question is, can you achieve an arms control agreement that you believe is reliably able to serve the national interest when we have now decades of experience that the partner with whom we're negotiating does not abide reliably by those agreements? And so really one of the, the, the question is, do you set up a standard that your partner has to be a partner in these agreements in good standing uh, before you'll continue this process? Uh, my personal view is, yes, that should be a requirement, that we need to have a partner that's in good standing before we continue this process. We should be open to the process, uh, but realize that our main negotiating partner here uh, has not proven itself to be a worthy arms control interlocutor. Just has not, and I don't say that with joy. I say that as a reality. And so, the, so, where, so where does that lead you? What's the bottom line of that? The bottom line of that is that 
the Russian Federation needs to come back into compliance uh, with agreements that is already signed or withdraw per the terms of the agreement. You say, well, isn't it doing that? No. Uh, the INF agreement, it just basically has stalemated on that. Uh, other agreements, for example, the CFE Treaty, which dealt with the forces in Central Europe. Russian Federation hasn't withdrawn from it. It just said it's no longer going to abide by it. And so uh, the conclusion that we reach, and then my own personal conclusion is, we need to have a partner that we can trust in the sense of if they sign an agreement and there's verification of that agreement, we don't have to try and figure out how do we enforce the agreement when we know that that partner has, is a habitual violator of agreements. Uh, and so if you put that up as a standard, uh, it changes the orientation. It changes the way you might approach what you can and can't do with arms control in a reasonable way. Thank you. Um, Matt, um, you, you did a great job, I think, of, um, of sort of dispelling the myth that um, U.S. reductions actually, you know, um, have a sta stabilizing effect. But what about, what, what do we do? Keith had mentioned that the Russians seem to be threatening somebody with nuclear weapons every Tuesday or Thursday, and it's Thursday, so um, they're threatening somebody. Um, what, what, what should the United States do then um, to, uh, to extend assurance to our allies in practical ways in the near term and to deter Russia um, that doesn't escalate an already tense situation, especially in Eastern Europe? Um, what are some specific things that the United States could do in the near term? It's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I think the first thing we need to do is, is have a clear kind of nuclear deterrence strategy uh, for Russia. Because the, the nuclear threat that Russia poses now is very different from the nuclear threat it posed during the Cold War. Uh, so as many of you might know, Russia has this uh, idea of de-escalatory nuclear strikes. Uh, so basically the idea is that if they get into a major war with NATO, Rather than lose the war, uh, they would begin conducting small numbers of, of nuclear strikes uh, on NATO forces on the ground, um, maybe um, critical infrastructure or other things in Eastern Europe, uh, with the goal being to frighten U.S. and Western leaders into backing down and suing for peace on terms favorable to Moscow. So that's a really difficult problem. Put yourself in the shoes of the U.S. president. How would you respond uh, to that? You know, say Russia invades NATO. Uh, invades a, a U.S. ally, we go to war to defend the ally, and Russia uses a nuclear weapon, say against U.S. forces on the ground or NATO ships at sea, you know, how would you respond? Now, I, I talk to you know, many former U.S. government officials, and some of them will say, well, let's just back down. I'm not willing to fight a nuclear war over Estonia. Okay, but if that's your policy, then you tell Russia, all you need to do is use a nuclear weapon or two, and you can take whatever you want. Uh, so that's not a very good strategy. Um, others say, well, uh, let's just fight through it conventionally. Let's maintain the moral high ground. Even if they're going to use nuclear weapons, we're not going to do that. Okay, so maybe that works for the first one. But what, what about when they use the second, the third, the fourth? Uh, you know, these aren't just symbolic weapons. They could have a devastating effect on the battlefield. It would make it very difficult for us to win a war uh, if they're using tactical nuclear weapons and we're only willing to fight conventionally. Uh, others say, well, our policy should be massive nuclear retaliation. That's kind of always been our policy. If they hit us with a nuke, we're going to hit them back with everything we've got. Okay, but the continental United States is still intact. Western Europe is still intact. Do you really want to open us up to potential retaliation from hundreds uh, of Russian nuclear warheads? 
So I think the, the best answer should be uh, that we have our own kind of limited nuclear war strategy. Uh, that if they think they can use a small number of nuclear weapons in Eastern Europe, we can retaliate. And of course, the purpose isn't because we want to fight a limited nuclear war, but it's to deter Russia from going down that path in the first place. Um, but this isn't uh, official U.S. policy right now. That's just my view. So I think that's the, the first problem. Uh, we need to have a, have, have a strategy. And if, if we don't have our own strategy about how we'll respond to this, then there's good reason for President Putin to think he can, he can get away with it. And then um, second, you know, if you decide you want to go down this limited nuclear war strategy path as a deterrent, you know, then you get into a scenario and say, okay, well, which nuclear weapon would you use? Um, and that's a problem, too. Uh, we don't really have many tailored, flexible kind of nuclear options that can penetrate Russian air defenses in Eastern Europe. Uh, so I think that's something else the Nuclear Posture Review should look at. What are some other kind of more flexible, lower yield uh, nuclear options that we could deploy uh, in NATO or, or bring, uh, at least have deployable to Europe in the event of one of these conflicts that would serve as a credible deter deterrent? Great, thank you. Um, sticking on the same theme a little bit here, Tom, and coming to you on missile defense, um, there has been, and we'll, we'll start. We'll start with Russia. We'll do the harder question first. Um, Russia objects to the U.S. plans to finish out the EPAA in Eastern Europe, um, but th this administration intends to move forward with those deployments anyway. And Russia continues to object. So, can you talk a little bit about what the plans are there, and then also make a, 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 a recommendation as to what the United States should do about these Russian protests there, especially in Poland and other options there? And then the second part of the question, if I could, then um, switching regions of the world, the THAAD system in South Korea. Um, it relates to the first question because China also objects to the deployment of THAAD in South Korea. So, can, can you address those two points for us? So when he was the Tradoc commander, uh, a general by the name of H.R. McMaster published something this spring which described missile defense as a foundational capability for everything that we do uh, in national security. Uh, and I think that especially when you understand, understand that in terms of the low-tier air and missile defense, uh, it, it, it's very compelling. Uh, now, I, I think that, that both you and, and actually Matt uh, have pointed in this direction, and that is the low tier. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that I think we're going to do a lot more stuff for homeland missile defense, I think whoever would be the president would be doing more stuff for homeland relative to, to where we were. But I think that doing more on the low tier area missile defense is critical, not just for North Korea. And what do I mean by that? Well, in particular, Matt brought up the, the escalation problem. If you're going to get into that kind of a problem, it's going to start with something. It's probably going to start with something smaller. And I think that there is probably a lot more room for low-tier air and missile defense to, again, raise the threshold for aggression. Take some of the cheap shots off the table, not merely for North Korea, but also take some of the cheap shots off the table by Russia. And so therefore, when you think about you know the smash and grab type uh, fait accomplis that we worry about for Eastern Europe and that kind of thing, um, is it conceivable that some short-rad, short, you know, really sh uh, low-tier air and missile defense could complicate their calculus enough to you know, kind of prevent that escalation, uh, kind of take those temptations away in the first place? Now, you mentioned the, 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 the Russian and Chinese objections to these things. Yes. 
There is no, no matter how slow, no matter how small in, uh, in number uh, the Patriot deployment is, there's no missile defense or air defense system that, that uh, China and Russia don't hate. And I think in the first instance, that's, that's because of the political connections. But in the second instance, because if you're going to take off the no-kidding opportunities and temptations for them to push their neighbors around and conjole them, uh, that's, they don't want to do that. And so therefore, I want to highlight something that the House of Representatives, the House Armed Services Committee, put into their uh, bill language for the, uh, for the NDAA. And that's to say to the U.S. Army, okay, guys, it's been a long time in this whole modernization thing. If you don't get this right and you don't get us a 360-degree protection for your air and missile, for, kind of low, for your Patriot stuff, uh, we're going to take it away from you and we're going to give it to the Missile Defense Agency. Now, the Army kind of began looking at this and set a requirement back when cruise missiles were still young in 1993. That was, that was a quarter century ago, right? We still do not have 360-degree protection for our Patriot forces. And if you're kind of trying to have a protection of your Army maneuvering forces for the European Reassurance Initiative in Eastern Europe, you're going to want something that is actually tailored to the threats of the 21st century, not those of the 1980s or 1990s. And so there's a problem there. That, that, that needs to be prioritized, uh, I think, in a big way to, to deter and to take those temptations off the table. The FAD thing as well, you know, um, test directors going well. The, uh, the intercept this week was actually the, the first IRBM. Uh, I'm waiting for folks to say that it was barely an IRBM, but, you know, they seems to be doing well. Uh, I think the, the thing to comment upon there is the... Uh, the political situation in South Korea. There's a little bit of noise and rumbling about whether they should get a few more launchers out there than just a couple. Uh, I think the que real question is why aren't there more right now? Uh, the purpose of FAD, the purpose of Patriots in South Korea is not to sit there and play catch, but to provide a defensive support, the overall deterrence and defense posture for U.S. forces so that, no kidding, you cannot decapitate and retard our, our uh, response if you decide to do something nasty to them. Thank you. Um, with that, I will, um, we could take maybe we've got time for two questions, if we can keep them brief. Um, if you could just raise your hand to indicate you have one, and the microphone will come to you. Uh, please do introduce yourself, and then keep your question to a question, and very brief, please. Hi, my name is Mateo. I was curious. Given the abject failure of the Iranian nuclear deal, what lessons can we learn when we negotiate with countries in the future attempting to stop proliferation, say, when Turkey or Saudi Arabia seek to have the same technology? Well, um, I think the I, I was a critic of, of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, I understand the arguments in favor, um, but um, you know it's really been a principle of U.S. nonproliferation policy going back decades. Um, to, to really draw a firm line between um, peaceful nuclear programs, operating nuclear reactors for the production of energy or for research, uh, drawing a firm line between that and making the fuel for nuclear reactors. Because uh, once you can make the fuel for nuclear reactors, you can make the fuel for nuclear weapons. So U.S. non-proliferation policy essentially has always been to draw that line, allow and even encourage countries to have nuclear reactors, uh, but prohibit them from having the fuel-making capability, uranium enrichment, plutonium reprocessing. So this is something we've imposed even on our, our closest allies. 
Taiwan, South Korea in the 1970s were trying to have this fuel-making capability. Uh, we forced them to shut it down. One Taiwanese scientist said, by the time the Americans got through with us, I'm surprised we're allowed to teach physics here in Taiwan. Um, and um, you know, the vast majority of countries on Earth with truly peaceful nuclear programs don't make their own fuel. Uh, they get the fuel shipped in by Russia or France or another country, operate the fuel, uh, run, run the fuel through the reactor, and, and send it back. Um, and in the Iran deal, that was our uh, goal for, in their negotiations, that was our goal for a decade, get Iran to shut down the enrichment program. If they really want a peaceful program, we'll, we'll let them have it. Uh, but then we caved, and we allowed Iran to have this enrichment program. Um, so I think that makes it harder for us to stop Iran once the limits on this deal expire. And it also sets a dangerous uh, precedent. So already, South Korea, uh, United Arab Emirates, others are saying, well, if you trust Iran with this fuel-making capability, uh, you know, a state that's basically a U.S. enemy that's cheated on its past nonproliferation agreements, then why don't you trust us? Uh, you know, in the case of South Korea, democracy, a close ally. Uh, so I think it's made it harder going forward. But uh, for me, the lesson is we, we need to stick to our principles that have worked and, and drawing this firm line against the spread of enrichment reprocessing technologies. Um, and, you know, it's one thing if a country tries to go down this path. It's a completely different one, as we did in the Iran nuclear deal, to give it the international stamp of approval. You know, go to the UN Security Council and, and say it's okay for Iran uh, to have this dangerous capability. So that's the biggest lesson for me. Uh, stick to our traditional principles. Uh, reactors are fine. Fuel-making capabilities are not. Just wait until the microphone comes to you. And... I suppose this question, well, the name is Michael Strutzel. This will be for Mr. for Dr. Kronernik. Um, please comment on what you think was the uh, the result of both India and Pakistan having acquired nuclear capabilities and compare that to today, the example set by what happened in uh, Libya for North Korea. Mm. Well, a few uh, thoughts, I guess. Um, you know, one, there is a difference between what India and Pakistan did, and I think the, the programs in Iran and North Korea, uh, because India and Pakistan never signed the NPT. Uh, and they, well, um, they haven't had a war, but there have been many. I think there are a number of aspects to your question, so you know, just a few quick comments. So I think there is a difference uh, between that and a country that signs the NPT, gets the technology, and then cheats, as, as Iran and North Korea did. Uh, two, there hasn't been a war yet. Uh, but these countries have only had nuclear weapons for a little over a decade. There have been a number of dangerous consequences. Pakistan has transferred nuclear technology to Iran, Libya, and North Korea. There have been several high-stakes crises. Uh, U.S. feared there, there could be a nuclear war in, in the cargo crisis in 1999. Um, and, you know, it's still fairly early days. Pakistan talks about uh, using nuclear weapons early in a crisis as a way to offset an Indian conventional invasion. So I think there is a very credible pathway to war there. There could be a Pakistani cross-border incursion. India responds with a conventional invasion. Pakistan uses tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and then we're in, into a nuclear exchange. So I think it's a very dangerous uh, situation. But uh, to get, I think, to what your question was, was getting at, I think there's no doubt that um, 
the supreme leader in Iran and Kim Jong-un in North Korea looked at what happened in Libya. Uh, Gaddafi had this uh, WMD program. He decided to give it up. And a few years later, he was overthrown. And I think the lesson they, they took from that is that you, you don't give up your WMD programs. So I think that lesson of Libya will make uh, any future Iran or North Korea nuclear negotiations harder. We've got time for one last brief question. Please, here, this lady right there. Hi, Morgan. Um, your title is very interesting, actually. It says the new age. And we are in the 21st centuries. Uh, so cyber and space are becoming more and more um, players uh, in whether defense or an offensive operation. How do you see the nuclear posture, regarding which country has nuclear in it, evolving or maybe declining while the space and cyber are um, getting more and more attention and interest from other non-nuclear countries? No, I'm happy to. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, space threats and cyber threats are playing a more prominent role now than they did even fairly recently and are likely to play a more prominent role in the future. Um, and so when we think about the relationship between those threats and, and nuclear policy and deterrence, per se, we have to understand that the threats of the Cold War have now expanded. In other words, it's not just a nuclear threat that we need to be concerned about. It's not just biological threats. It includes these uh, really unprecedented uh, threats. And so there are some very interesting questions with regard to, for example, deterring cyber threats. And I won't take but a minute. But um, one of the things that we presumed during the Cold War, by and large, was that if somebody decided to launch an attack, we would be able to identify who that somebody was. And so we could deter that somebody by having a deterrent threat in advance. So that if, and let's just use the Soviet Union, if the Soviet Union engaged in a highly provocative act, let's say a nuclear strike against us or our allies, we would know who that was. And our deterrent would prevent that in the first place. Why? Because we would know who it was. Right? And we would know their address. And so our threats should be able to deal with that. Our deterrent threat should be able to deal with that problem. Fast forward to where we are now and think about the cyber threats and what's called forensics. Do we have the forensics to know uh, where the threat came from or where the attack came from? Now, I don't know if we can answer that question confidently yes or, or absolutely not here and now, but to the extent that there's uncertainty about where, let's say, a cyber attack came from, how do you try and get deterrence to operate? You, you can't just have a blanket statement that says if we receive a cyber attack, we're going to we're going to respond to X, Y, and Z. I mean, you can, but it's probably not a very credible deterrent threat. And so one of the questions that, that comes to the front right now is we look at cyber as, as cyber threats as something we will need to prevent and hopefully be able to deter is our ability, our forensics ability, to identify where did that threat originate, where did that attack originate, so that we can have deterrence um, help to preclude the possibility. Otherwise, the, the responses are simply trying to protect against it, which is something we need to do anyway. 
um, so that we can deny the activity. So it's a whole new world for deterrence. Uh, and so if, even if you do have the forensics so that you can identify where the threat came from, what kind of response do you try and, and use as a deterrent? And what kind of response is credible? Is a nuclear threat credible with regard to a cyber attack that may not have initially uh, destroyed anything initially? Uh, so these are these are great questions, and they're going to be the questions that we need to deal with with regard to how to do deterrence for the next probably 40 years. It's a new area for even some of the most basic questions of how do you apply deterrence to the reality of the threats we face. Good question. Thank you. And with that, will you please join me um, in thanking our panelists for a great discussion?